Uh, would you pray with me and, and we'll dive into this? Jesus, thank you that you are the word who became one of us. Uh, you are the mighty word of God communicating with us. You are the light and the life of the world and you lead us into life with God. Uh, so Lord, we pray that's what you do today, that you would enliven us in experiencing an encounter with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are trundling along in our series, Dwell. The Word Became One of Us. Uh, we are in week three. We had Andrew Kleinsmith very kindly come and speak to us last week. And I don't know about you, I felt greatly blessed by that. Uh, but what we get in this series is a, a nativity like you've never heard it, uh, or like you don't hear it typically anyway. John's nativity, which is what we're looking at, we're in the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1 of John. Uh, John's nativity is a nativity like no other. John's nativity, just as much as the others, is the story of Jesus being born. It's the story of God coming down into the world, God the Son being born as a man, uh, but where the others focus on the on-the-ground details, you know, your, your mangers and your shepherds and your Mary and Joseph and, and your wise men, where they focus there, John shows us the ultimate eternal realities of what happened in what we celebrate at Christmas when Jesus was born. There's a... Um, I've left the clicker, so I'm going to rely on you, Mark, to click along as I make this quote here, okay? Uh, there's a scholar named James Hamilton uh, wrote an excellent commentary on this. If, you wanna, if you're a commentary kind of guy, that's the last slide possibly. Um, nope, no, it's the first one. Um, if you're a commentary kind of person then, then, and you want one on John, I'd highly recommend uh, James Hamilton's commentary there. But he, he quotes, uh, he says this, and I thought it was so great that I would just nick it from him, let you know who said it and pass it on to you. He says... Could there be a more profound opening to a book than the one to John's Gospel? One could search the great ideas of mankind and probe the ponderings of the philosophers and the poetry of the artists and find no idea greater than God, nor a more concise yet expressive statement about him than the one John makes at the beginning of his Gospel John profoundly links his gospel to the creation account in Genesis 1 with the words, in the beginning, before launching into the world's most economical articulation of the everlasting relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The first statement, listen to this, the first statement of John's gospel is a bomb of meaning that goes off without warning, erupting suddenly, and the sublime and inexpressible the infinite and unsearchable, the personal and ineffable reality of God comes exploding onto the consciousness of John's audience. And that's, that's what we've been seeing over these last weeks, and this is what we see in John's Gospel, especially in this opening passage. Jesus is the Word. He is the self-communication of the all-creating God to us. Jesus is light, and Jesus is life. As Jesus communicates God to us as the Word, as we come to know God, light breaks into our darkness, the darkness of our sin and of our brokenness. Life comes in and, and, and what real life, true life, life like you've never known it, if you don't know the life that is in Jesus, 
consists primarily of is being reunited with, being in relationship with the God who created us to know him. And if it sounds like I'm rushing through a bunch of stuff here, it's because I'm rushing through a summary of what we've been over the last two weeks. Because now we come to John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. And this passage brings us to a point of challenge, a point of tension in the Christmas story. Because what we find here is quite simply that Jesus demands a response. So today we have these four little verses that represent two ways to respond to Jesus. Uh, And in the end, they are the the only two ways to respond to Jesus. From the Bible's perspective, from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that truly matters, if he truly is the all-creating God of the universe, there are no fence-sitters. There is no indifference towards God that is not opposition to God. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily going to go into this, but let me just tell you, if you look at your Bible there, you'll notice that the passage we're preaching at the moment is basically dead center of, of the opening of John's Gospel. And the reason for that is that this whole thing kind of sits, um, there's, a, there's a, a word that they use for, for ancient literature called a chiasm. You don't need to remember that. But what it means is, is that bits of, the, bits of the structure of what's written match, and in the center you have what the author really wants to bring your attention to. And right now, what we're looking at today is the re- what he really wants to bring our attention to. How you respond to Jesus is centrally important to you and to everyone. Uh, Now, the first way that people respond to Jesus is that we read that many reject the light of the world and instead love the darkness. Uh, And what's what's crazy is that um, the very people that we might expect to have openly accepted Jesus... I don't, I don't know, like, I, 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 Christians, we have a tendency sometimes to look at people and go, well, that person would make a good Christian, and I don't expect that person to ever get saved, and uh, like, uh, if that doesn't feel familiar to you, I've just run into it a lot, and, and the Bible completely boots that out the window, because the people that we might expect would be lining up to be saved by Jesus, to know Jesus, to trust in Jesus, the Savior of the world, are actually, in John's Gospel, what we see is they're the ones who reject him turn away from him. In Jesus' day, you have religious leaders and Pharisees. Um, Now, those are words that are a bit loaded for us if you've been sitting in a church for a while and you're picturing kind of the the masculinized Cruella de Vil already, but but that's not who they are, right? On the ground, they're people who seem to take God really seriously in their day who spoke the right words, who wore the right clothes, who prayed very well. Like you would have heard them and you would have gone, hmm, you're a good prayer. Um, and, 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 and these guys, and they, they would have appeared to be quite holy, quite good, quite moral people. But by and large, they are the ones who reject him. who say, we don't want any of that Jesus. We don't want you to be our savior. It's what Andrew told us last week. Jesus didn't come to start a religious movement for people who were into that kind of thing. He came for the irreligious to bring them to the life that we were created for. What that means is that there is a wrong religion. 
which constitutes 90-something percent of religion. And, and how you might summarize it is doing the right things in order to be right. Now, there's, there's all sorts of ways that that manifests from doing the right things in order to gain nirvana, doing the right things in order to impress God. I followed the Ten Commandments, so God will accept me. I've, I've never killed anyone. I've never smoked. I've never done drugs, so God, God will accept me. Like, that's God's kind of bucket list for your life. Um, Anti-bucket list of not done things. Uh, but, but Jesus didn't come to show us that some people were good enough and that, and, that, and that other people still needed him. He came to show us that we had all lived in great darkness and that he was the only great light. And that, that brings us to this question, which is, is what, what sort of person did Jesus come to save? I mean, at its base, everyone, right? But who are the people who tended to accept Jesus? Who were the people who came to him in their droves and were rescued? Who were the people that he came for? Who would accept Jesus? And what does it look like to accept Jesus? What does that mean? And John gives us a startling, simple, life-changing answer. He came to save those who would have faith in him, who would believe in his name, and nothing else at all matters. You know, if everything is about Jesus which is what we've been seeing, right? If, if he is the, the word, he, he is the, the self-communication of the all-creating God to us, if he is light and he is life, and the life is relationship with the Father, eternity and joy with him, then there is one question which towers in importance over every other question in the entire world, which is, have, have you accepted him? Have you received him into your life? The invitation, it's, it's open to everyone, but it is most often accepted by those who are humble enough to know that they have literally nothing to bring to the table. There's no room for pride in coming to Jesus. Um, we get this beautiful illustration, real-world illustration of how this works in the story that we get in John chapter 4 of the woman at the well. If you've got a Bible, you can, you can flick there. Um, I mean, you don't need my permission, but yeah. In, in John 4, Jesus um, is in Samaria. Um, I'm going to flick there because I want to I be able to point some things out that I haven't specifically written down here. So John 4. Um, Jesus is in Samaria. And we might ask, you know, what's he doing there? Um, we'll, we'll deal a little bit with why that would be surprising in a sec. But, but the first verse of John chapter 4 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So why is Jesus leaving Judea and going to Samaria on his way to Galilee? It's because of opposition from the religious people because they don't like what he's doing and in Samaria he meets someone a profoundly unlikely person to be saved um, 
this is this is actually probably on the ultimate list of people who you'd look at and go, yeah, they're they're probably never going to believe. Um, they're, they're, they seem to have written off God and literally everyone else in their entire life. So I don't I don't think there's a chance here. Uh, he meets a person who has nothing to bring them. Uh, now this person, we find out layers of why that's true. First off, she is a woman. Now, that does not mean that women are less than men, but it does mean that in Jesus' day, women were treated less than men by the vast majority of culture. And it was probably atypical even for a man to speak to a woman that he didn't know in this way. But not just that, she is a Samaritan woman. Now, here's where we deal with that tension. Um, the Samaritans were, you could probably easy summarize, kind of the most hated people of the Jews, the Jews being the people that Jesus was one of, born into. Hated with what you might call actually decent reasons. Um, how you might summarize it is if, um, if we had all, imagine if Australia, you know, we'd got invaded, we got sent into exile, and then we'd come back, um, but, but Western Australia had kind of gone off in the meantime and become jerks. And, and they had decided that what they wanted to do was stop us from resettling Australia. And they'd gone to every link that they could possibly do to stop us from resettling Australia. Um, did I say Indonesia out loud? Because I probably shouldn't have named that. But anyway. Oh, well, there you go. Well, now I have. I don't think Indonesia's going to invade us. But anyway, you've got to have someone. Um, you know, they'd, in fact, they'd, they'd, they'd gone along with Indonesia. You know, they'd, they'd become more Indonesian than Australian. Um, and so they're against Australia now. Um, imagine how you might feel about WA. Love WA, by the way. Um, but imagine how you might feel about it if that was the case. And you have kind of a glimpse of how the Jews saw Samaria, the Samaritans. When, when, Israel, when Judea had gone into exile and then had come back to the land, the Samaritans had uh, gone way away. They were the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And they'd gone way off the track. They'd, they'd, they'd become kind of uh, syncretized with the nations around them. And so when the Jews came back, they tried to stop them from rebuilding and stop them from resettling in the land. Um, it, is, it is that blunt, the, the, the opposition here. And, and, and here is a Samaritan woman. And like when Jesus talks to her, she's shocked because she's like, you're a Jew. You guys don't talk to us. We don't talk to you. That's how this works. There's actually more than that, though. What we read is that she is there in the middle of the day drawing water from this well, which is where they meet. Uh, and she's there alone in the middle of the day drawing water from a well. And that might seem like a little throwaway detail, but actually we find out why she is there in the middle of the day is shame. See, it would have been normal for the women to come out from the town, all of the women, in the early hours or the late hours when it's cool to collect water, to get the water you need for the day. You come out in the morning when it's not hot in the, in the baking sun. You don't come out then. You come out at the start. Yet this woman comes out alone without all of the others because she's running from people. She doesn't want to see anyone because she knows how much they condemn her for who she is and for what she's done. She's rejected by her own. 
for entirely different reasons to why Jesus is rejected by his own. Uh, as Jesus talks to her, we find out she's actually, um, she's been married to and has left five blokes. And right now she's living with a bloke who's not even her husband. Now, forget the ancient Judeo, you know, ancient Judean culture. Just think about how that would feel today. How, how in the town of Minleton, people might approach someone who locally has married and left five blokes and is now living with another. Okay, and now, now wind that back into a culture where they took marriage a bit seriously, because ours doesn't. Uh, in fact, where, where you could even be considered written off for leaving one marriage. And you get a bit of an idea, right? This woman was outcast number one for her community. And, and, and who she meets is the one who is rejected for his perfection. And who, who offers salvation to her. The one rejected for his perfection meets the one rejected because she is such a sinner, for her deep imperfections. And as Jesus speaks to her, he reveals to her that he is the saviour of the world. He's the saviour of God's people and the offer of life in his name, eternal life, is open to her. Even though no one else would even help her with the water, right? Yet he comes to give her eternal life. And she receives it with such joy, with such elation. Because what's happened for her is more than attachment to a new religious movement. She has done more than go, you know what, I'm going to start coming on Sundays. She has met the saviour of the world and he has turned her life upside down. She receives it with such joy. John says, John summarizes why this is such a big thing for her. Back in chapter one, where we, where we started here, he says, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, <coughs> to become children of God. When you trust in Jesus, something fundamentally changes in you. You are born again is the way that John's gospel puts it. Thank you, Crystal. You become new on the inside because the power of what Jesus did takes effect for you in your life. When Jesus went to the cross, he carried the sin. This is not just a general reality. This is a reality for a woman who is married and left five and is now living in sin with another, that Jesus carried that for her intentionally. He carried the shame. And you know, that's not just her people. That is us. Because when we come to Jesus, what we acknowledge is we are no better than her. If the truths of our heart truths of our sin, the truths of our hatred, the truths of our indifference towards our creator were really truly seen, we would see that there's no place for pride in me. I've got nothing to bring and he accepts me and makes me a child of God. 
let me tell you, trusting in the name of Jesus transformed your life. Because you don't just trust in him once. You don't just make a one-off decision. You begin trusting him instead of trusting yourself. Instead of trusting all of the things that you looked for, for satisfaction and for freedom, all of the comforts of this world that had been getting you past and getting you along in life, you say, no, 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 those things are not as good anymore. I have the saviour of the world who gives me life everlasting with God. I found true life so I can say no to the other false lies. You know, the woman at the well, remember, why was she there? She was running, right? She was ashamed. She was trying to escape the people of her own town. And now what happens in the story is she runs to town. She drops her water jugs and runs to town. Shame doesn't matter because she trusts that God has carried her shame. Christian, are you still believing that the shame of what you've done is something that you need to hide? That is a bold-faced lie of the devil. Jesus has carried it. It can be in the open. It's not yours anymore. Fear doesn't matter. The God of the universe has communicated with her. The word of God has come to her. She has eternal life in his name and no one can snatch it away. She's met the one who gives her If you're a Christian already, and, and I think most of the people listening to this today are, who knows who's listening online, uh, let me invite you back into this, to keep walking in this, to live trusting in Jesus, to live the radically transformed life that has new priorities, new joys, new rhythms, new ways to live because you've been born new because of what Jesus has done for you, for me. Ours is to be a radically transformed life, like hers. You know, we're, we are called by trust in Jesus' work for us to live with rhythms of repentance, rhythms of turning, not, not hiding the brokenness in us, but going to brothers and sisters, finding trusted brothers and sisters and saying, look, there's sin in my life and I believe Jesus has carried it for me so I can be open with you about this and we're going to bring it in the light and we're going to, we're going to kill it. The darkness is going to go because the light has come. Rhythms of, of hospitality. You know, the gospel calls us into a deeply changed dinner table. Opening your table to those who don't know Jesus because he has opened his table, the table of God to you. We move into rhythms of devotion. How, how often have you believed the lie that this, this is just something that may, maybe you pick up for 10 minutes a day or maybe 10 minutes a week uh, because it's kind of a Christian duty to do. These, this is where we meet the one on a regular basis who gives us life. And if we have met him, we will come here devotionally, which means to devoted, because we love him and we know that he loves us. We'll talk to him because we know that he hears us. We'll talk to others about him 
because we know that he works through us. He will be changed because we knew we had nothing to bring, but the light of the world has given us everything. Would you pray with me? Jesus, by your cross, we are led in to light in your name. I want to pray, Lord, for anyone listening to the words today that we're speaking. Lord, when when you were born, the angels of heaven rejoiced so exuberantly that it burst into the sky. And the glory of the Lord was seen there. Because you sent salvation for us, you came down for us. I want to pray that anyone anyone who has not trusted would, would see and would know and would accept and trust in the glory of God as revealed in Jesus at the cross where you died, spilled your blood for us. At the empty tomb where you showed we have new life in your name. Lord, for all of us, we pray, lead us to trust. Lead us not to believe the lies of Satan, but make this faith of ours a trivial thing, a once a week thing, a thing that I can put on hold for a time whilst I go and do other things in my life. Lord, you are our life. Help us to live running to the wellspring of our life and carrying the water of eternal life that is the good news of Jesus out to the world around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.